0: Thank you for visiting theopenword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of this series from Alan Schaefer.
1: Let's open in prayer tonight. Father, thanks for this night, and I pray that you teach us now as we examine your word, that you would open our hearts to what's here. It's a great couple of chapters. Lots of good stuff here, and I pray that we would learn. Thanks so much for this time, in Christ's name, amen. All right, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and we're making our way along, hopefully pretty well here. we got three more classes after this. Next week is Thanksgiving, and then we got three (coughs) classes after that, and we're done until, I'm thinking it's the first Thursday in January after New Year's. I think is what it is. Does anybody have, anybody get any information? It's pretty close there. Um, we'll find out, we'll find the date. But uh, that's when we'll start Daniel and Revelation. So, yeah, Daniel Revelation. Alright, chapter 2, you therefore, my son... Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who'll be able to teach others also. This is a call to discipleship. Um, it's a call to reproduction. And basically, when we look back at the whole goal of the Christian, I guess the Christian life um, in, in, in terms of its growth and its development, Our calling in the Great Commission is not to make believers. It's to make disciples. That's really what the calling is. Um, In fact, if you go back to Matthew chapter 28 in the Great Commission, Christ tells the disciples, verse 18, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. If you take uh, Greek, the Greek language, and you study that particular text, there's a single verb in that text. You may want to take a guess what the verb is. There's a single verb. No. Make disciples is the verb. Go is a participle. You know what a participle is? Not anymore. Okay, it's been a long time. It's, uh, it describes a verb somewhat. It's going. Going, baptizing, and teaching are all participle. Participle phrase, participial phrases. And uh, that describes what making disciples consists of. Christ told his disciples to go and make more disciples. And the way you make more disciples is that you do it by going, baptizing, and teaching. All right? Those are the the three that are mentioned here. What do you think the going has to do with? Out of your area? Yeah, go somewhere, you know. Now it could be that uh, you go to the next county or the next state or the next house on your block. The idea is that you have to go out to make disciples. You don't make a disciple by saying, I'm a Christian, come here. You know, sometimes I think we have an idea in the church that you know, we do our church thing, if anybody wants to become a Christian they can come here. That's not the way it worked in the New Testament, the way you made believers in the New Testament is that you went out and you brought them here but you went out to get them. Um, Christ went out he didn't sit on the hill waiting for people to come to him he didn't sit on the mount and when when he did the Sermon on the Mount he didn't sit on the hillside waiting for people to show up he went out to them and the idea of going is to go out and it also carries the idea of as you are going about your business Alright, and what kind of action is that phrase, going? Is it something you've done once? Is it continuous? It's a continuous action kind of thing. So as you're going through life, as you're doing whatever you do, you are to make disciples. Alright, so the going is part of making a disciple. And then it says part of making a disciple is baptizing them. What do you think means to baptize them? What do you think it means? Uh, In this day, they were immersing in water. All right, so you think it means to dunk in water? I do. Okay.
2: Anybody
1: else? Convert. Yeah, convert. Anybody else? Remember our discussions on baptism? So what, what, are the, what are you to do with these people? You go, you proclaim the gospel, they become a believer, and then you just leave them there? And what do you mean by baptize? You dunk them in water, and then you go off your, your merry way? The idea of baptism... Yeah, the idea of baptizing is that you identify them with the body of Christ, you bring them into the body of Christ. It's not that you dunk them in water, although that was part of that process then. Rather, baptism is more of identifying them with the local assembly of believers, with the body of Christ, making them part of the community. And then, as they're a part of that community, what do you do next? You teach them. Alright, and that's all making a disciple. See, we got this idea today, and I, I, um, I think it's you see this in our uh, what do you call it, evangelistic crusade mentality. You know, just get them to come down the aisle, sign the card, pray the prayer. They're in next. Let's find the next sinner. You know, we got them, we got them in heaven. Whether you know they get there, however, they get there, they're in now. And that's not, the, that's not the mentality that Christ is promoting here. That's not the mentality. It's not, Think of it as a human baby. When the baby's born, you bring him home, and he's a little baby. You don't say, okay, milk's in the fridge, diaper's over there, have at it, kid. We'll see you in 18 years and hope you grow up all right. You know, No, it's care. It's, it takes a lot Nourish. of nourishment. You've got to train them. You've got to teach them. And I think the same paradigm can be seen in the church of Christ. We need to train people. We're doing people to disservice. If you lead somebody to Christ and then you don't do anything with them, you've not done your job. You've not made a disciple. Because what is a disciple? He's a learner. A disciple means learner. taste means to learn. A learner. But a disciple is someone who can, in many texts have this, reproduce. So you want to bring somebody to Christianity to salvation, you want to bring them in and make them part of the body of Christ, the local assembly of believers. You want to identify them with that. You want to then teach them so that they know what, well, everything I've commanded you, whatever the commandments are. So you teach them the Word of God. You you you, you train them, teach them, so that they in turn can go out and make more disciples. And and that's exactly the pattern Christ did, didn't he? He went out. And he found some guys. He found 12 duds, right? You know, did Peter come up to Christ and want to be a disciple? No. How did Peter get chosen? Christ chose him. Come follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. And Peter followed him. And the other 11 true disciples all followed Christ. And there were other disciples that followed him, right? There are seventy others we know of. There's a whole bunch of them. Five hundred. There was a bunch. One hundred and twenty in the upper room that we know of. So these people followed Christ and they learned of Christ. And in those days, the way you were taught is uh, you didn't go to lectures. You know, today, for, you know, let's let's take the paradigm. Pretend you're all my disciples, in in a sense. The modern American mentality is we come here once a week and I dump a bunch of information on you. And you take notes and you read your Bible and you read your books and you take a test and you've learned. Right? Because you get a little grade that says, hey, you learned whatever. You know, that's the American model of teaching. But that's not the biblical model of teaching. The biblical model of teaching is that you would follow me around all day long and watched how I lived my life, and watched how I handled situations, and how I dealt with things, and you'd learn by observing my life, which is sort of a scary thing to me, because I'm not sure there are some things in my life I want you to learn, right? right. right. I and mean, let's face it, right? You don't want somebody following you around 24 hours a day, but the whole point is that's how Christ taught his disciples. He taught them by bringing them with him. And they watched him. They, they saw how he handled life. They watched his, his actions. They watched how he dealt with situations, with people, with temptation. They saw how he handled disappointments and how he handled problems and situations that came into his life. They watched him. And that's how they learned to be a disciple. Christ is saying that we need to teach people how to be disciples by letting them observe our lives and watch us. And that's a job all of us. That's not a job for the church. You get this idea, well, we'll bring them, we'll bring them to the church, we'll get them saved, and then we'll dump them in a class somewhere. No, if you lead somebody to Christ, they're your problem. You're to be the discipler. And maybe you say, well, I, I don't know that much. Well, you know more than they do, so teach them what they don't know, and maybe you both can learn, right? But you need to be take an active role in their discipling. And what Christ is saying in the Great Commission is <coughs> You go out and make disciples, you make other disciples and what Paul is saying in second Timothy two is he's telling Timothy, you go out and find faithful men. you go make a disciple now, what was Timothy to Paul it- A disciple, my true son, Timothy had. Timothy was Paul's disciple. And how did Paul teach Timothy? By example. Timothy watched his life. In fact, later on in in 2 Timothy 3, Paul says in verse 10 But you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life. You've watched me live. You've observed my life. You've seen me. So I'm not telling you something that I've not practiced myself. You know by my example how I've lived. And Paul's telling Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Be strong in the grace that God has given you. And here the idea of grace is the gift of grace, which includes salvation, um, includes the Holy Spirit, includes the gifts that he has, includes all that we are in Christ. That's a gift by God. Be strong in that. And the things you've heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men. You'll we'll be able to teach others also. Find some other faithful men that you can pour your life into. So those faithful men can then teach some other faithful men. So if you're looking for a disciple, what kind of person do you want to look for? Faithful. And What do you mean by faithful? What do you think faithful means? Committed, somebody wants to learn, right? <clears throat> There's nothing more aggravating than trying to teach somebody that doesn't want to learn anything, mm-hmm. right? right? I mean, you want to teach people that want to learn, they want to know, they want that's why I like teaching Moody. You all have to actually pay money to be here, <laughs> which means that <laughs> you're interested in being here, you've got a commitment to be here, okay. all right? Yeah. Um, you have some incentive to want to learn. And that's better than if you all were forced to be here. Paul is saying, I want you to find faithful men. And, you know, although this is directed to Timothy, by extension it belongs to all of us, doesn't it? The women. What do you define? Some other faithful women. You know, there's a lot of women that need to know how to live the Christian life. And you all have a lot to give them. Find a few of them and teach them. So they can teach others. And this is the whole idea of reproduction here. We, you know, Christ, Christ is not, God's not into numbers. He's not into the numbers game, right? Who is the number one discipler of all time? How many did he have? 11. And then you got Matthias right there, all right? Paul, who's the second greatest disciple, probably? Paul, how many did he have? Two, Two of them, we know. Of. probably Luke fit in there, and Silas fit in there, and a couple others. All right? So how many? He had about six, maybe. All right? Not a lot, right? So you don't need to worry about numbers saying, well, you know, I need to disciple 20,000 people." No, you don't. If you disciple three or four of them really well. And then they disciple three or four more really well, and they do three or four more really well. It doesn't take long before you've got a whole lot of people.
0: I I love that. Uh, I was just reading last night the phrase where he explains that and how it's an unbroken chain from Christ and Paul to you and to us.
1: And to others. And um, yeah, it, it started back in the first century and it's gone unbroken, all the way through time, you know, and uh, we need to find those faithful people. Now, will you ever, once in a while, will you find a faithless one? Yeah, Paul had a Demas, didn't he? Well, maybe more than that, you're right. Paul had a Demas, didn't he? Christ had a Judas, you know, and, you know, I've had people in my life that, you know, I've taught Sunday school class for years and that, and they, they're off the deep end, you know. What happened? I failed them. No, I didn't fail them. They were duds. You know, they were one of the faithless ones. It's not my fault that they turned out wrong because they need to want to learn as well. But Paul is saying you really want to find people that are faithful, people that, that won't take no for an answer, people that want to hang around and learn. You know and and where did Paul get this information things you've heard of me aware among many witnesses right Paul's saying this isn't the stuff that I just came up with on my own you know I didn't sit and dream this stuff up where did I get it I got it and it was confirmed among many witnesses Alright, so when you disciple people, don't, don't give them your quirks, give them the Word of God, right? Let them understand the Word of God, and, and that, that's where you want to to keep the focus. And the idea of committing is to entrust, entrust this treasure to other faithful men, and it is a treasure. It's, it's, uh, it's valuable, it's You know, it's not something to be tossed around. And um, here's a question for you Do you think there are, are, do you know of certain people that you don't really expend a lot of energy to teach them anything? Why? They're not not faithful and they don't want to learn. I've had a few of those in my life where after a while it's just, you know, wasting your breath. Isn't that what Christ meant when you cast your pearls before swine? Don't take which is precious and cast it to the dogs. Don't, don't take the precious word of God and give it to somebody who's going to trample it under their feet and despise it. Now that, that doesn't mean that you don't want to teach people, but you know what? People have to have a desire to learn. If you're going to disciple them, they need—they want to be able to learn. I have a friend, you know, in my walking illustration. He knows—he has all the answers, so you don't need to tell him anything because he already knows the answer. So you can't teach him because he already knows it all. So don't waste your time. Don't waste your breath. What they say: don't try to teach a pig to sing. It annoys a pig, and it—it's waste of your time. It doesn't. It. Yeah, try not, don't teach a pig to sing. It annoys the pig and it's a waste of your time. Find people who want to learn. And those are the ones you want to pour your life into because they're, they're, they're focused. Because what, you want, what do you want them to do? You want them to turn around and do the same thing to some others who can do the same thing to others. And what you've got here is four generations. Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. Pass it along. And it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to do that. One, stop and think. Why do you think it's important? This has a question. Should everybody be a disciple to some extent? Mm-hmm. Well, to, some extent yeah. to some extent, you should be a disciple. What, what are some of the positive benefits of being one? That's sort of a cool thing, isn't it? Yeah, real yeah. cool. What's another positive benefit? Like to see them pass it along. Pass it along, so to become a grandfather, grandmother, so to speak. See them exercise their Mm-hmm. That's the result of growing. Yep. Yeah. Is there a benefit to yourself? Mm-hmm. What? You grow too. Mm-hmm. And it you to do it. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first started to, I first started the whole teaching. My whole teaching career started with me discipling one guy, and I was discipling when I, you know, as I started going, and it was called the Timothy, Operation Timothy. It was called. And it was based in these two verses, and I was doing that, and I said to you. I remember as I was discipling, it hit me, you know, I can't tell him to do this if I'm not doing it. And so what it did is, like like Anita said, it made me stop and, wait a minute. If I'm going to tell this guy to read his Bible, I better read it myself. I'm going to tell him to do this. I need to do it myself. I'm going to expect him to live a certain way. I need to look at my own life. So it helps you grow (coughs) Because you got people looking at you, um. So all of us should be discipling. Find somebody who knows less than you do. And there are those. There are people that know less than you. And and help them, you know. And Paul then says, he, he talks about this discipling thing, discipling task, and then he says you must endure hardness. And now he's going to illustrate it. What do you mean by discipling? Is discipling easy? Well, no, it's not. All right. So he uses three illustrations. He uses the illustration of a soldier, the illustration of an athlete, and the illustration of a farmer. Verse 3, you must endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He says doing this is like being a soldier. And what does a soldier endure? They endure hardship." The idea there is self-discipline. If you're going to be a discipler, you need to discipline yourself. Um, you're going to need to watch what you watch on TV. You're going to need to spend your time better. You're going to need to watch how you how you do or, or or what kind of entertainment you do and how you manage your time and all those things. You need, you need to discipline yourself. And he says here, no one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. They may please him or list him as a soldier. And that's, this is an axiomatic thing. No one engaged. The idea of engaged there is to be involved in. Okay? If you're involved in a battle, you're not to get entangled. The Greek word implacatai means to get tangled up in. Get distracted. By the affairs of bias, life, physical life. If you're a soldier, do you worry about where you're going to eat? No. Do you worry about what you're going to put on in the morning? No.
2: You worry about
1: the eating. No. <laughs> because they give you a uniform, they tell you what to eat, they tell you <laughs> when to <laughs> eat it, right? <laughs> they tell you all of that stuff. In other words, if you're a soldier and you got to be consumed with trying to figure out what clothes you should wear, and where you're going to get your next meal, you can't be a good soldier because you're consumed by worrying about these other things. And Paul is saying if you're going to be a good soldier, you can't get caught up in the affairs, the things of physical life. If you're going to be a good soldier of Christ, you can't get involved in or tangled up in this world. And, um, you know, I think a lot of Christians get tangled up in things in the world. You get tangled up in a lot of things. You could be tangled up in a job. Now, you want to do a good job. You want to serve your employer well. That's what we found out in 1 Timothy 6. But your life isn't your job. If you're a workaholic, you've gotten tangled up in the affairs of this life. Your home is something nice, right? You need to have a home to live in. And as a believer, it should not be run down. It shouldn't look like Fred Sanford's backyard. But on the other hand, there are people that get so enamored with their home and all of that other stuff, they don't have time for anything else. Don't get, the idea here is balance. Don't get so sucked into things of this life that you forget about who you are and what you're you're to do. Paul's saying, it's just like a soldier. He, if he gets all caught up in things that are not part of the mission, he's not going to be a good soldier. And he's not going to please the one who chose him to be a soldier, his commanding officer. You want to please Christ, don't get tangled up in the things of this life. And doesn't that go along with what it, you know the parable of the soils, right? What happened to the seed that fell among the thistles? It got... Choked out. Why? Because it got consumed with the things of this world, the affairs of this life. And I think this is a good tactic of Satan. He gets us all tangled up in things in this life. You know, how how can he do that? What are some of the things that tangle people up? Money, Money. houses, Houses, jobs relationships, organizations. I'll tell you another thing. Debt can tangle you up, right? You get, all, get so far in debt, you can't do anything. Yeah, they said the good is the enemy of the best, isn't it? The idea here is focus. That's all. The idea is focus. Is that, Paul's not saying you're not allowed to have this or that. Focus. What's your focus? If your focus is right, the other stuff will fall into place. But focus on what is best, just like a soldier. And then he uses the picture of an athlete. If you compete in athletics, you're not crowned unless you compete according to the rules. How do you win in an athletic contest? You have to train for it. And, and this idea, compete here is, I think, agon, to work, to agony. We get agony from that. I think that's the Greek word here. The idea is working hard. Training, but uh, if you don't follow the rules, you get you lose. And I remember the greatest uh, one one of the things, the examples that brought this back is, as so I was teaching this passage many years ago, it was the winter ath it's Winter Olympics, and a guy had broken the speed skating record, and he was disqualified because he accidentally touched the ice with one of his fingers. You're not allowed to do that speed skating, I guess disqualified there goes the record right out the window and the other guy got the broke the rule you know if you want to get the gold crown if you want to get the medal, if you want to get the Lombardi trophy or whatever it is you gotta play according to the rules you gotta follow the rules if you don't follow the rules you get disqualified and what do you think that what what bearing does that have on discipleship And if you, if you fail in being godly, you're disqualified, right? You have, you have to walk the talk. You're disqualified. And then there's the picture of the husband, the hard-working farmer. If you work hard and grow your crops, who gets the first bite? You do. And um, I think that, what, what do you think that means? What, what, what's, what you, what's he trying to promote with that imagery? Well, as far as making disciples, mm-hmm. um, well, you get to partake of the fruit of what you produce. Right. In all three instances, let's stop back and look at it at the 20,000 foot level. In all three instances, is the prize immediate or future? It's all future, right? The soldier wins the battle, pleases the commanding officer. The athlete wins the contest. The husbandman gets the harvest. So in all cases, it's a future thing. And that future thing is what makes the present... Activity worth it, right? How can the soldier keep his mind on the battle because I'm gonna win? How can the husbandman worry about the heat of the middle of the day? Well, I'm gonna have a harvest. How can the athlete endure eight hours a day practicing? Well, there's the gold medal, okay. And what enables us to to focus on our job as discipleship is that there is a prize. It's a future prize, but there is a prize. And also, each one of these sort of illustrates a different aspect of the discipline we have to um, apply while waiting, right? What's the first discipline of the soldier? What's his discipline? Focus, right? Focus. The athlete, what's his discipline? Well it's focus but it's training training and it's and it's playing by the rules. rules. What's the discipline of the the farmer? Hard work. Patience. Patience. And it's All Paul's doing is trying to illustrate. You know, being a discipler is hard work. Takes a lot of patience. You got to do it the right way. You got to play according to the rules. You, it's, it's, it's discipline. It requires focus. But there's a reward. Ultimately, what is the reward? Yeah. Well done. Well done that's what enables us to get through the the in between times is the eternal focus. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you wisdom and understanding in all things. Think about this is what Paul is saying paul uh, Paul's Admonition to Timothy in these seven verses is Timothy, find some faithful men, pour your life into them so that they can pass that on to some others. It's going to be hard work, it's going to take a lot of effort. Don't become disqualified. Don't, uh, and how do you disqualify yourself? Sin, right. Immorality can disqualify you. Some other great moral failing can disqualify you. Don't get disqualified. Keep working at it. There is a prize. The prize, ultimately, is the well done. You did a good job. Yeah. But you got to work at it. And I think, you know, when I look at this, I, I would encourage all of us in here, find some people to disciple. Find one person, just one. Maybe. You know, and take a special interest in them and try to train them and and let them look at your life and let them see how Christ is supposed to operate by looking at your life. Any comments on this passage? I
0: thought John MacArthur's illustration of the, the story of the kids who've been locked in the attic you know, their whole childhood, and then saying that's like worldly people who, who you know, whose eyes are closed and they haven't been uh, preached the gospel, I thought that's pretty stark contrast.
1: Well, you relate to that, yeah. right? Because you were one of those worldly people, came to know Christ and all of a sudden it's like, oh, I understand. Yeah. But it is
0: it's torture to be uh, to in hindsight it's torture to be worldly. Like,
1: yeah. I mean, you're, you're really
0: blind blindly, you know, going through life.
1: Yeah.
0: So MacArthur has so many good he does. illustrations.
1: Okay. does. Here's one illustration when he, I think he was preaching through this passage or another one about one of the guys he got up at I think six o'clock every morning and discipled this guy. For two years, into two years, the guy ran off with some other woman, became a Buddhist something or whatever. Might have been even in the book, I think. Um, ran off, and been. A, he said, "I spent two years with this guy, praying with him at six o'clock in the morning." What happened? He wasn't a faithful man. You know, he wasn't faithful. Yeah. We don't know whether they're going to be faithful or not. Someone asked, Macar- you know, go talk about MacArthur. Someone asked him, well, how do you find a faithful man? How do you find someone who would you'd be probably willing to disciple? He said, I want somebody who won't, who won't let go of me. You know, somebody who will pester me mm-hmm. and keep at it. Why? Because they're not going to be put off. You know, if they can be put off, they're not tenacious. They're not going gra- to grab on him. He says, you know, I'm going so fast, if, if there's a guy that's willing to run and keep up with me, you know, he has some of the characteristics of one to be a disciple. Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. What does he mean by my gospel? Just the good news, the gospel that I preach. He's not saying, I came up with this gospel. <laughs> that's not the point. Yes, yeah, the gospel I believe it's my good news. again, gospel is good news. So the good news that I preach is Jesus was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Um, and this harkens back to Romans 1:4. Jesus was of the seed of David. Why is, he, why is that an important notation here? What's that prove? He's fully man, right? 100 percent man. So he's of the seed of David, but he's raised from the dead. What's that? That's the deity part, right? So you got the humanity and deity merged into one here. And because of this, I suffer trouble as an evildoer. Because I preach the gospel that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead, I suffer as an evildoer. And how is he suffering at this point? Well, he was in jail, right? He's in prison. Even to the point of chains. I'm in chains. But the Word of God is not chained. I may be in chains, but the Word of God is not chained. Nobody can chain it up. Nobody can stop it, right? So Paul wasn't worried about his chains. He wasn't worried about what situation he was in. His only desire was, how can I best preach the Gospel? How can I best... Tell people of the good news wherever I am. If I'm in chains, I got Roman soldiers to witness to, right? The word of God is not chained, therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. What do you think he's saying there? I suffer all things for the elect's sake. Who's the elect? which believers? Are they believers yet? They were the elect, the ones chosen by God, right? They haven't heard the gospel yet, right? So they're chosen by God, but they're not yet saved. So why is Paul going through all the trouble he's doing? So that the elect may become... But now, wait a minute, Paul. Theologically, the elect are going to get saved, right? And Paul wanted to be part of that, didn't he? He's God's tool. And so, this, to me, this is the greatest verse in the Bible, to me. This is the greatest verse in the Bible as to why you preach to the elect. So that they may be saved. But they're going to get saved anyways. Yeah, they are. But who's to tell tell whether you were part of that process? Paul did not fall into the fatalistic camp of just if they're in, they're in; if they're not, they're not. There's no hyper Calvinistic notion in him. Hyper Calvinism is if they're in, they're in; if they're not, they're not. I'm not going to witness to them. I'm going to go out and you know have it easy. You know because if, hey, if they're in. They're in. Paul's saying, look, why am I suffering in chains? Why am I preaching the gospel? Why am I in prison? Why am I enduring all of this persecution? Why am I being treated as an evildoer? Well, for the elect's sake, so that they can obtain the salvation that they have by virtue of their elect, but they haven't got it yet. Because somebody has to tell them.
0: How many people since he wrote
1: In Quite a few, haven't I? Right. I mean, think about it. See, Paul saw himself as part of the process, and that's what we need to do. You know, you know, I, we, we've we've talked that and beat the horse to death in the class. You're elect, God's chosen, but listen, I'm responsible. I need to witness. I need to preach. I need to proclaim the truth. I might be part of the process. And if I don't do it, somebody else will, but I'll miss a blessing. But I, I, I don't even worry about that, right? I just want to be faithful. And why do you want to be faithful? Well, he tells us in the next few verses. This is a faithful saying. This is number four, I think. Of This is the faithful saying. If we died with him, we shall live with him. If we endure, we shall reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. We are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. Now you read that, it sounds confusing. It sounds very confusing. Alright? The first couple of phrases are pretty easy to understand, right? If we died with him, we shall live with him. When did you die with Christ? Yeah, you're di- Romans, right? right? Romans 6. It's all Romans 6. If you're in Romans, this is Romans 6, you know, boiled down to one phrase. You died with Christ, you're going to live with Christ. And you died with Christ um, mystically at when he died on the cross, you died with him. But in your reality and in, in your time, you died with Christ when you became a believer. You died with him. As far as God was concerned, You're dead with Christ. And because you're dead with Christ, when Christ rose again from the dead, what do you do? you will rise with him. (coughs) So it's easy to understand. If we died with him, we'll live with him. All right? That's pretty clear there, isn't it? If we endure, if we, in other words, if we remain faithful, we'll reign with him. Now, what's that, again, what's that a promise of? Yeah, millennial reigning, rewards, right? If we tough it out, if we hang in there, if we remain faithful to him, what will he do? Reward us, right? I mean, that's seen throughout the Gospels, right? One of the reasons we want to obey Christ is because he's going to reward us someday. There's a reward for faithfulness. So that all makes sense, right? Then it says, well, if we deny him, he'll deny us. Now, what do you think it means by that? And what does it mean by denying us in front of His Father? For all of those who here believe in eternal security. it can mean a couple of things. One, you can lose your salvation, right? Or it could mean you're not saved. Alright, there is another possibility, we'll get to that. And then it says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Who's the faithless person? He's faithful, we might fail. If we fail, he'll never fail. He cannot deny himself. Um, well, the way to understand this is to understand the, um, the structure, I think, of this little section here. And uh, it's a common structure used. It's called a chiasm. You ever hear of that? It's a chiasm. It comes from the Greek letter chi, like that in X. All right. And, and basically you think you have A and little a and B and big B. And these two are connected, and these two phrases are connected. It's like an X. Alright? You got this goes down to A as B is to B, something like that. And and so what what it's saying is that phrases 1 and 4 are connected. And phrases 2 and 3 are connected. So if you connect phrase 1 and 4, what's it saying? Connect phrase 1 with phrase 4. What's phrase 1? If we die with him, we'll live with him. And if we are faithless, he is still faithful. faithful. He can't deny himself. All right? So what it's saying is th- this is this is instead of being eternal insecurity, this is a comment on eternal security. Okay? If we've died with him, we'll live with him. And if we fail, he's not going to fail. He remains faithful. He can't deny himself. He will not. He will not let us down. All right. You, you understand what I'm getting at here? Now let's now let's connect the inner two. If we endure, if we stick it out, we shall reign with him. If we don't stick it out. He will deny us what? Look at phrase B. No, you, you, we're worried about deny. We're worried about... Forget the previous phrase in the Gospels. This, understand this in context. If we deny... If, if, we, if, we, if we endure, we stick it out, we're going to get to reign with him. That's a good thing. All right? What happens? No, no, no. And what does it mean by him denying us? If we do, if we do X, we get Y. If we don't do X, we don't get Y. Right, yeah, yeah. Does that make any sense? It can't... Now, 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 why do we come to this? You say, well, where'd you pull that thing out of there, you know? Well, where you get this is you can't... You know, one passage of Scripture does not contradict another passage. This can't be telling you that you lose your eternal life because that is attested to everywhere else in the Scripture. You can't say, well, this is telling us I lose eternal life. So it can't mean that, right? And when you understand the literary structure of Hebrew, there's chiasms all over the place. You go back to the Old Testament in the poetry books, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, you've got chiasms everywhere. I mean, they're just every other passage has a chiasm on it. It's a common, it's a it's a common literary device that they used. Okay? And what he's saying is you've got these two thoughts here that are opposite the two thoughts here you work your way in then you work your way back out okay if we have died with him we'll live with him if we endure we reign if we deny him what does it mean to deny him well that's coupled with the enduring part right so if you don't stick it out, if you don't remain faithful, he will deny us. Not in the sense of eternal life, but what do you, what do you miss? You don't get the reward. You don't get the reign. And if we remain faithless, if we fail, he's still faithful. He's not going to let us down. He can't deny himself. I think the idea of denying yourself is that he cannot lie to himself. He cannot go back on himself. He cannot reverse anything. In fact, later on, God who cannot lie. All right. Why, here's the point. Here's the thing. Here's another way to think about it. Here's another way to think about it. When you became a believer, here's something to think about. It's a wild idea. When you became a believer, God says, I'm going to give you eternal life. Now, if you blow it and you remain faithful, and God says, you know, I'm going to take away your eternal life, what has God just done? He's lied, right? He said he was going to give eternal life. He's lied. He's a liar. He can't lie. He can't go back on his word. Part of eternal security is tied up not only in the electing sovereign purposes of God, but in the fact that he made a promise and he can't break it. Yeah. he Not only did he promise you to Christ in eternity past, but when you became a believer, he promised that he would take you all the way through to the end. What happens
2: for when I got a guy today who was a Baptist? If he was a believer, but now he renounces the belief,
1: God is still faithful. God is still faithful. Now, if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't be banking on that.
2: All right. We don't see the halos.
1: We don't see the ease on the foreheads and the backs and things like that. But the the point that Paul is making here. Is you know there's a reason we endure. We get to reign with Him. Why why am I going through all this garbage to 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 bring people to Christ? Well, I, I, you know I died with Him. I'm going to live with Him. If I endure. In context, what's the enduring referring back to? Well, all the garbage that Paul is going through. If we endure, we get the rain. And that goes back to the hardship, the whole discipling, the whole. Thing that Paul is talking about, the whole discipline he's going through. If I endure, I get to reign with him. If I blow it, what do I lose? My opportunity to reign. My reigning. I don't lose it. Why do I? Why is it that I don't want to become disqualified? I want to reign. I want to. The idea of reigning with Christ is serving with Christ. Why is it that you want to be a good discipler? Because you want a reward. And if you, if you mess it up and you get disqualified and you don't stick it out, well, you're still in heaven, but you lose the reward. You lose the, what you could have had. And you don't miss out on eternal life because God can't lie to himself. He can't deny himself. He can't go back on his word. Even if you go back on your word in the sense that you don't stick it out, He'll take you through. Now, you may get to heaven and go to the great, or not the great white throne, but the judgment seat of Christ and wind up with a bunch of ashes. But you're still there, right? That's right. Just as there as anybody else. You're still there. You won't have a reward, you'll suffer loss. But you won't be cast into outer darkness. Same thing. Uh, that, remember the parable of the, of the pounds. You know, the one servant, he, his pound gained ten. Another one, one pound gained five. The other guy hid it under a stump. And the master took the pound from him and had one and gave it to the guy who had ten. And what happened to the guy that had one pound? What happened to him? Well, yeah, I mean, he's still part of the kingdom, right? But he was still what? He was, a pauper in he was still kingdom. a servant. The guy that did 10 got how many cities? Mm, ten? 10 cities. The guy that did nothing got nothing. The guy that got five si- pounds got five cities. I think that I think this is the best way to understand this. The other ways to interpret this violate the Logia scriptura. So, well, wait a minute. If I deny him, he's going to deny me. You mean if I deny him on earth, I get denied in heaven? So Peter gets denied in heaven because he denied him on earth? What does it mean to deny? You get into that whole thing. The idea is the idea of enduring. The idea of hanging it out. If you don't stay with it, you lose your reward. Oh, you get to heaven. And you get to heaven because if you died with him, you'll live with him. And if you remain faithless and you don't hold up Pro- when you became a Christian, what did you promise to do in essence? What did you promise to do? To follow Christ, to obey him, right? And if you fail, he still holds up his end of the bargain. He promised you eternal life. He can't deny himself. He can't go back on his own word. He can't lie. Yeah, there's eternal life in hell, but the life here we're talking about is the quality. I think it's heavenly life. If you talking my eternal life in the sense of duration, yeah, everybody lives eternally. But eternal life is the the, the the quality of life in heaven. And there are just too many other passages that, you know, the deny. And, and the struggle we have, and, you know, I know talking with Seth, the struggle he has. You know, he's got guys that come in there have been Christians supposedly for thirty-five years. They've divorced their wife, left their family, and went off with the secretary. And doesn't matter to them, but they're still Christian. They think. Well, could they be? Yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, they could be. What's another good possibility?
2: <laughs>
1: they, they couldn't be. They never were.
2: That's, that's, what, never that's were. the question I have with Seth about.
1: I don't think he ever was. What does it mean to be a Christian? See, here, here's the point. Here, here's the thing. Here's the missing thing that we don't... We, we here, Here's the thing I think we, we miss in our modern evangelistic <coughs> understanding of things. We think becoming a Christian is walking down an aisle, praying a prayer, and signing a card. Becoming a Christian is a transformation of life. It's a, you're a new creature. It's a transformation from the outside or from the inside out. And there are people that think, Well, I'm a Christian because I've gone to a Christian church. I remember going to Billy Graham Crusade. I remember praying that prayer. I'm in. No. No. There are a lot of people that go to churches and they're good moral people. There's no reality because it's a transformation of life. And what you find with the parable of the soils is when the heat comes up, what will happen? They die. When when the when the affairs of this life and the deceitfulness of riches come along to some, what will happen? And it may take a while. It may take a while. But eventually, they'll fall away. Sometimes it takes an awful long time for that to happen. And all we can do is just tell people look, if you are truly born again, you're secure. But the Bible says those who are born again are different, you're not the same old person. And the challenge is to examine yourself whether you be in the faith. What did that Paul say? First, or Second Corinthians, examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove yourselves lest you be reprobate. How do you examine yourself? Look at your life. Are you different? Are there holy aspirations? There's no easy answers there. And I've seen them too, Seth. I've seen them come and go. You know, I've seen them come through the church and go out the other end.
2: We see the outside, and only,
1: God really only God knows. And all I can do is warn them and tell them, I say, you know, don't fiddle around with this. Because they might still be a Christian, they might still be saved, but what have they just forfeited? Their eternal reward. You know, they're in, but there's a shame for loss because they could have done so much. And Paul is telling Timothy here that I'm, I'm enduring all of this stuff. I'm going through all the the trials and troubles I'm going through because I don't want to be denied. I don't want to lose my reward. And even if I'm faithless, God will still be faithful. But I want to I want to win the prize. Yeah. That's what he says in Philippians three, right? I want to run and win. I don't want to run and lose. I want to win the prize. Yeah.
2: I- when I think about it, it's like heaven's such a reward. Uh, it's like I'd win a
1: million dollars and somebody else would win a million hundred so what If I got into heaven, <laughs> I mean, but,
2: that's such a reward then. But part of it is, see, part reward of it goes
1: so back. So yeah. 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 and And part of it goes back to if you love Christ, you want to please him. And there's not going to be anything that's going to be in greater joy than have him look you in the eye and say, you know, you did a good job. You did a good job. I'd rather have that than look in the eye and say, you know, you blew it at the end. You're here, but you blew it at the end and you could have had so much more. <coughs> he can't deny himself. Then Paul tells Timothy, remind them of these things. Who's the them? Disciples, Disciples, right? Remind them, remind them that there's a a reward for being a disciple. And there's also a danger of losing that reward if you fail. Charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit (coughs) to the ruin of the hearers. Again, this goes back to the B theme, right? Remember, you got your A plot, your B plot. This is the B plot. The B plot in these two books are don't get tangled up with doctrinal issues that don't amount to anything. Don't get drawn off into things that are irrelevant. And we talked about a lot of those irrelevant things. Strive towards to no profit. And this goes back. What kind of words do you want to hear? Ask yourself, if, if you're going to if you're learning whatever it is you're learning and it's not making you more Christ-like, it's not contributing positively to your life, do you need to listen to it? No. No. And not to pick on Seth, but most of the Christian psychological junk that you get today is in this category. You don't need it. It's words to no profit. What's it matter whether you're born first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth in your family? It's irrelevant. You don't need to argue about the birth order and all that other junk. You know? What's important? What, what, is, what, is, what is it? Get, get to something that's profiting. That's profitable. Instead of pop's Christian psychology, the latest fad. And what happens is we're we're Christian. I've been a Christian long enough to see all the fads that have run through the church. Fads. How many know the four temperament types? You ever hear that? That that took over the church when I was growing up. When I was in. You know, young teenager, that was the big thing. You know, well, well are you a sanguine, a choleric, a melancholic, or a phlegmatic, you know? And it's like, well, what does it matter? I don't, do you see those categories in the Bible? No. It's irrelevant. And you, by the way, do you know where that comes from? You know where that theory comes from? I think it's Aristotle, isn't it? <coughs> One of those guys from, yeah. And it had to do with the four supposed bodily fluids. Blood. Phlegm, black bile, and yellow bile. Now that really sounds like a good, good theological basis for forming a whole theology of personality. And then, of course, the guy came along and said, "No, you're a lion, an otter, a bear, or a eagle, or whatever it is, a golden retriever, or something." Look, folks, that's words to no profit. Paul is telling Timothy, charge them. What is it? Command them. Look them in the eye and command them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit. And what does it do? It ruins the hearers. You sit around, you argue about this stuff, you talk about it, and it doesn't do you anything. It it doesn't lead you to be a more godly person. Rather, it takes you the other way. It, 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 It gets you looking at something you shouldn't be looking at. Instead, be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Study, spude, to work to exhaustion. It's um, it's a very intensive verb here. It it, it precludes our daily bread five minutes a day. It's what you're doing here. What are you doing? You're studying. You're you're working. Yeah. And you're succeeding. I mean, some of you worked all day long. you got to come listen to me for three hours. Mm -hmm. All right? And the idea is you're studying to show yourself what? Approved Approved to God. You want God's approval? What do you need to do? Study. Study. And what are you to study? Words to no profit? No. You're to study the Word of God. And he says here... A worker who does not need to be. Wow, you know, think about that. Think about God being ashamed because you've not spent your time studying as you should. That doesn't mean you study 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It does mean that we're serious about the Word of God. This is just an
2: aside here. I was at that seminar today, the Lead Like Jesus seminar. It was a pretty good seminar. And they brought out a lot of that, you know, living to be the Christ, <laughs> you get by all these, you know, afraid of being vulnerable or popular, or your pride and your fear and the materialism. But I mean, the approach to it was really good, I thought. But I mean, you said, and it talked about learning, and, you know, studying and what you needed to do. And I mean, there were quite a few CEOs that were Christian there that I didn't even know about but, that have really brought their, you know, those multi million dollar businesses well,
1: up. What- I think in the church today, we have this aversion to study. And I'll tell you, I've never found so many ignorant people as you do in a church. And, uh, you know, I think it's a sad thing. I mean, you're all cut above the rest. Um, but I've been in classes, you know, where I, I talk about David and people's eyes glaze over. They don't know who I'm talking about. I like Jamie so much because I can talk about these stories and he, you know, he doesn't like, oh, yeah, I know about that that guy. Then He actually read the Old Testament, I think. But the whole point is that there, there are people that have been in churches for years that don't know basics. We're not, we're not saying you need to be a Bible scholar, but look, the basics of the faith you need to know. I mean, good night. If you've been in the church for five years, you don't know who David is. If you've been in the church for five years, you, don't, you can't tell somebody what it means to be saved. You're not listening. Now, what we want to do is we want to go to church and we want to do what? Sing, clap, have a good time? Yeah, feel good. And, you know, the great example, Donald befriended a gal who went to a certain church on the North Coast and she'd been going there for a long time. And she knew nothing. She was, she was a spiritual moron. I don't, I mean, she, she was spiritually retarded. I'm talking about, she didn't know who Aaron was. She didn't know who Moses was. She didn't know who David was. You know, I asked her, well, how long have you been going to that church on the north coast? So I've been going there for ten years. It's like she knew nothing. Yeah, she knew how to have a good time. She knew how to clap. and But she didn't know anything theologically. There's some here. and And, and Look, <coughs> Paul's, not, Paul's not ragging on people because they don't know something. He's ragging on people who don't know anything and they're not studying to learn anything else. It's the effort. I mean, we all need to know a certain amount of truth. And we don't know that. We, the ch- people in church today are generally pretty ignorant. They're pretty ignorant. They're not teaching, and you know, you come and say, well, "We're going to learn some doctrine." Oh, everybody runs for cover, right? Because that's boring. That's oh, that divides. We don't want to talk about doctrine. Paul says you need to study, because if you don't study, you're not going to be approved.
2: Like I never like to pick my former Catholicism. Since, a, since my mom is still a dual, mm-hmm. <laughs> I know there's hope for it. <laughs> but uh, that was one of the things. It seemed like you were there to listen. But what were you listening to? You know, you, didn't, I mean, you put in your time, you listen. Now, maybe that's changed a little bit in some churches now. But that was the whole thing. I, I never really understood. Philippians would say that. Romans, can you read those every week through a gospel, an epistle.
1: You know, Martin Luther's time, you could become a priest and never read the Bible. It's irrelevant. See, and that's why you have people today in church. And, and that's, why, that's why you have this, this total onslaught of error because people are ill-equipped to deal with it because they don't know what the truth is. Right. So when error comes along, they, don't, they, you know, they just eat the local weed. They're like little kids that put anything into their mouth because they don't know what they ought to put in and what they shouldn't. So they'll eat anything. Paul is saying, look, study to show yourself approved to God. Workman who does not need to be ashamed. And then it says here, rightly dividing the word of truth. The idea means to cut straight. Ortho, tomeo. Ortho, is straight. Tomeo to cut. And Paul's taken this from his job as a tent maker. What did he do? He made tents. Now, how did you make tents in those days? Yeah, you didn't go down to the to the, to the fabric store, in order. you know I'll, I'll have 150 yards of uh, number two canvas. No, what'd you do? You had to go get skins from the animals. And they were all different sizes and shapes, right? And you had to cut them and piece them together and sew them so that when you got done with the tent, it was straight. Paul is saying, here, you need to cut the Word of God straight because if you don't cut it straight, what is it not going to do? not going to fit together. And that goes back to the Logia Scriptura we talked about, right? You've got you to gotta make sure the, the Scripture fits together. You know, that was my challenge in the whole sovereignty of God, human responsibility. You can have all the whosoever will passages you want, but you've got to deal with uh, chosen before the foundation of the world passages just as much. You can't ignore one set and leave the other. You've got you to gotta have them all. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a composite. You can't pick what you like and toss the rest out. And that takes a lot of hard work, doesn't it? Because there are some doctrines that are sort of tough to piece together. It takes a little bit of work. It takes a little bit of energy, effort, time. And sometimes you studied all your life and you still ain't got it. But Paul is saying, look, study to show yourself approved. Instead of striving about words to no profit, study to show yourself approved. Pay attention to what you need to pay attention to. And if you want to think about it, maybe the striving about words to no profit is like getting tangled up with the affairs of this life. You get tangled up in things that don't matter at all. And I think the one
0: thing that says here about being diligent about it you just don't do it for a while and stop and do it
1: again. You need to keep at it. Yeah. Now, one of the greatest examples of, I think, greatest the greatest object lesson of this is to walk in the Zondervan bookstore at the mall. Yeah, and what do you see? You see a lot of words to no profit. I'm serious. Look at all of it. You've got you've got Christians. Look, there are Christians that have read every one of the Left Behind series. But they have yet to read Habakkuk. In fact, they don't even know Habakkuk's in the Bible. They don't know who that guy is. You know? Yeah. Is it an H? <laughs> and or or they've read every they've read all of the Larry Crabb series on psycho Babel, but they have yet to crack the Book of Romans. They know all the latest theories on the rapture, but they don't even know what justification means. The point is. They're striving about words to no profit. Look. Yeah. Yeah. This is one. This is this is the one for a wana Youth Organization. Study to show yourself approved to God. That's their key verse. Yeah. Put it in your heart. You know. And, And it says, but shun profane and idle babbling. See how it's sandwiched. Instead of dealing with the words to no profit and the profane and idle babblings, and that's what he's, it's babble. When, when, psycho babble is just that babble. It's blah 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 blah. What's the matter? It doesn't matter what it says. <coughs> the idea of babbling is you don't need to know what it says because it doesn't matter if you know what it says, right? <laughs> Do you know what your baby's saying when he's blabbing? It it it, it it's irrelevant. It, don't, don't deal with it. It's vain babbling. For they will increase to what? More ungodliness. Folks, you know, again this goes back to First Timothy. How do you know what's the good doctrine? Does it produce godly people? Does it produce holy People. Does it produce people that know the word of God? Does it, t- does it produce people that have a deep love and, and uh, loyalty to God? Or is it producing people that argue about things that matter to know that matter nothing at all? And does it produce people who are ungodly and self-centered and proud and arrogant What's it producing? It'll increase the moral guidelines, and their message will spread like cancer. Like gangrene, it's called here. It's cancer. It's it's a spreading disease that just eats away. And unfortunately, the church has a lot of these diseases just eating away, it's eating the heart out of the church. And I'm telling you, psychology, I think, is done on almost irreparable damage to the church christian psycho- so-called christian psychology has almost done irreparable damage everybody's got a psychological disease it's not sin it's not holiness it's not it's some psychological thing you know you're addicted to pornography you're addicted to alcohol it's a disease alcohol is a disease alcoholism smoking or anything it's a disease you can't help it it's, we psychologized Christianity. It's eaten us alive. And he used a couple examples. Hymenaeus and Philetus are like this, who strayed concerning the truth, saying the resurrection is all past and they overthrow the faith of some. They've not cut it straight, didn't they? They've not taken the word of God and cut it straight. They've come on some odd duck thing that violates many passages of the word of God and they've overthrown the faith of some. Don't go down that path. When somebody comes along and says, you know, the Lord revealed something new to me that He's not revealed to anybody else in church history, stay away. Bye, Bye. see ya. All right? Because there's something wrong here. Thank you for listening. This podcast
0: was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.